Welcome to Project Chatter, the podcast where PPM experts from various sectors talk about the latest trends. Listen to Val and Dale as they talk about tried and tested best practices and share their unfiltered thoughts about the industry. Whether you're here to learn how to progress your career, improve your project control skills, or just want to hear an Aussie and South African rant about projects, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to the Project Chatter podcast with your hosts, Dale Fung and Val Matthews. Hey everyone, this episode is brought to you by JustDo.com. JustDo is a great business and project management tool we've been using here at Project Chatter. I agree, Val. I like to keep things simple and JustDo is perfect for that. But I do know it's got a lot of powerful functionality as well. And one of my favorites is the task-specific chat. Absolutely. And for all you slackers, don't wait for Monday. Check out JustDo.com. Now on with the pod. This podcast is brought to you by Plan Academy. Plan Academy is the world's leading learning site for anyone working in construction, project management, or project controls. At Plan Academy, you learn construction, planning, and scheduling theory, how to master scheduling software like Primavera P6, and even advanced construction scheduling techniques. Plan Academy's courses are 100% online and at your own pace. You can learn at the office, at site, from home, anywhere. Check out planacademy.com today for free sample lessons and tons of free video. Hello, project people, and welcome to the Project Chatter podcast. I'm Val Matthews, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Dale Fung. Hello, folks. Exciting. This episode, we get to talk to Colin D. Ellis. Welcome to the show, Colin. Thanks, Val. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure, mate. My pleasure. And on this pod, we'll be chatting to Colin about one of his best-selling books, The Culture Fix, How to Create a Great Place to Work, and the Importance of Culture to project professionals, projects, and organizations. But before we do, here's Dale with Colin's bio. Thanks, Val. This is an amazing bio. Just wait till you listen to it. So Colin D. Ellis is an expert on workplace cultures and an award-winning international speaker who works with organizations and individuals around the world to help them change the way they get things done. You won't find a list of qualifications on his LinkedIn profile because school wasn't his thing. He didn't go to university. He just wanted to start working which he did for NatWest Bank in the UK in 1987. That's not to say that he hasn't committed to ongoing professional development. Of course he has. And he's read, listened to, and witnessed great people doing great work for many years while being the best version of himself, grabbing every opportunity within reach, never shying away from a challenge, and always being willing to fail and learn. And that's quite important, the failure bit, and we'll get into that probably. Through his work as a permanent employee for almost 30 years and now self-employed, he's been able to help individuals and organizations to create cultural legacies and deliver successful projects. He's extremely proud of and personally invested, invested in every one of these successes. Without working with some great people and committed clients, he wouldn't have been able to deliver successful programs, publish four best-selling books, speak at conferences, conferences around the world, host a podcast, or create an online community. So he doesn't come to you with, a th- with theory. He comes to you with his proven practice, things that he's seen work time and again. It doesn't matter if you're a cool clothing retailer, government agency, FMCG team, or an under-the-pump energy producer. The steps taken together will define, articulate, and set in motion an amazing, evolving culture that delivers great work time and again wow colin amazing wow, as well Dale. said 
<laughs> you know what I what I missed out of that bio is the reason that I didn't go to university uh, is I got suspended for gambling when I was in sixth form. I was playing roulette with four other students, and my dad was like, "What are you going to do with your life? What are you going to do?" I was like, "I don't know. Maybe I should just leave and get a job." He said, "Do you want me to help you write a letter?" And so that was it. <laughs> that set me on the pathway right there. Suspended, suspended for roulette. Yeah, wow. roulette. Yeah. We'd wow. been warned. We had been. We had been warned. We used to play blackjack in sixth form college, and 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 the head teacher at sixth form said, "If I catch you again, I'm going to suspend you all." Uh, so we brought in a roulette wheel, like you do, yeah. you know. <laughs> Just but, you to know, you know to make it with, not obvious. Yeah, with, with with gambling, it's you know high risk, high reward, and um, you know it, it, it. And sometimes people want to take that path in life, but in many respects, you know, the path we choose is like gambling because you don't actually know the outcome. Um, so, and then that's something we'll get oh, into as deep. well, I guess. Yeah. That's deep, Dale. Hey, that, that was, was that was really deep. None of that was going through my mind when I kind of walked in the, 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 the uh-huh. form room with that roulette wheel. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it has since though. I'm sure it has. Oh yeah, it has. Yeah. yeah. Just, just when you said it then. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but um, I wanted to start with, um, you mentioned that, you know, you, you've worked in the project environment and obviously this being mainly aimed at project management professionals, but mm. also a wider community. Um, I wanted to start off with your experiences in projects and, and what for you didn't really work and, and, and you know, how, how you came to, to taking lessons um, learned from that into um, cultural uh, change, if we call it. You know what, uh, Dale, when I first started out as a project manager, not much worked, to be perfectly honest with you. It was the mid-90s. We had we had year 2000 up on the horizon. Uh, I'd swapped, you know, I, started, I left a really cushy, well, not cushy, but a real safe, secure job in a bank to go and sell advertising space in a newspaper because I just wanted to be around people. I really enjoyed being part of big teams and, you know, I really enjoyed the one-to-one interactions with people. I was approached to be a project manager because of those skills and and you know when i when i took the job i had no idea what i was getting into and I, you know often i when i talk to people who are project managers it's a similar kind of thing they were they were working in technology doing something or you know someone said they were good at planning and all of a sudden they had the word project manager in their title and 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 so my my learning had to be done very, very quickly and on the job. And and I was given the latitude to learn. And I think too often, I think, uh, especially these days, project managers aren't given that latitude. They're, they're told that they have to manage a project and, and they immediately have to be successful. And so I was fortunate in the sense that I, I was able to learn on the job and was able to fail. You know, principally for me, uh, my early failures particularly were around the structure that I bought, uh, brought to planning, the structure that I brought to risk management, because I wasn't really a structured person. You know, I, I, I you know, like agility now, oh, that's me, flexibility. Mm. I love that. I love interactions with different people. You know, I got to travel a lot within the UK, which I loved. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the kind of mistakes I made early on were not having enough structure around the way that I gathered information and processed information and put it in a plan. And also my interactions with people, I, I just thought that I could rock up, be my confident, extroverted self, and that would just work. 
And so, you know, it, it, was a, it was a steep learning curve. We had a lot to get done in those early days of me being a project manager. I had a, I had a boss who, who was empathetic, who was prepared to give me a little bit of rope, uh, point me in the right direction. Uh, but also, you know, I had, to, I had to read, I had to learn, um, I had to unlearn. I think that, that was kind of crucially important. Um, and you know, because I'd come from a, I'd come from a, a telesales culture where almost a silver tongue made you successful sometimes. Yeah, that doesn't work in projects, particularly when you're doing change to people who might not necessarily want it. Um, yeah, so it was a steep learning curve. Now that's amazing. And um, you mentioned, you know, there wasn't enough structure. Um, I, w- I wonder how you if you could go into a bit of detail about, you know, what, what um, structure was required, but then also I got, got me thinking is, is there, you know, where uh, a space where you can have too much structure as well? Is, is it detrimental at times? Uh, yeah. You know, and I, I, particularly later on when I was heading up project departments, we always took the uh, MVD minimum viable documentation approach. You know, you need just enough stuff written down to, to, to create the foundations for success. Certainly in the early days, there wasn't any, uh, uh we, in, in terms of creating a plan, my boss had talked to me about breaking down the work and he talked about work breakdown structures, but he didn't really understand that himself. He'd come from a similar environment to me. He was, wasn't working in telesales. He was working elsewhere in the newspaper industry. I was working for a newspaper company. So I had to, I had to go and look. We didn't have, there was no internet at the time, which makes me sound super old, uh, which, I, which I am. Uh, so I had to hire, I got, I rented a book from the library uh, on construction project management uh, and, and learned about work breakdown structures. The, the project management body of knowledge was in its early stages of development then. So I remember getting hold of a copy of that. Uh, but really bringing people together in a room to do it collaboratively. And I learned that very early on that actually when you do that, you get the buy-in. When you do that, you get the detail. When you do that, you get some of that rigor. Um, whereas in the early days, I was trying to do it on my own at a desk. And the thing that, you know, kind of there's four project managers. And what we all wanted was Microsoft Project. When what we actually needed was some techniques. Mm. Um and 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 yet you you kind of fast forward ten years and we got too much of the stuff you know and I was I was speaking to a project management officer a few weeks back and they were saying oh we've got like sixteen standard documents and I, you know I was like well you know you want me to come and help you transform your delivery culture because you say that you can't get anything done did did you not think to look at that stuff and say are we asking too much of our project people are there too many kind of marshes to wade through and you're full of snakes you know uh, so i think th- th- there is a healthy balance and i think when when project managers have got uh, all the information that they need about all of the techniques but then they've also got the team building and the interpersonal skills you can pretty much let them come up with the uh, their own i guess direction of a, a way of delivering it well, thanks for that. And then the other one that I picked up on when you were chatting there was um, unlearn. Now, we've heard this a lot, right? You've got to unlearn things. You've got to, you know, constantly challenge what you know. But not many people know how to do that. How do you unlearn what you know? Yeah, it's another one of those great buzzwords at the minute, you know, and um, always try and kind of 
debunk some of these. So when we talk about unlearning, it's about challenging the way that you think right now. Very few people take the opportunity to do that. And those are, those of us that do, you may read a business book, you may read a blog, you 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 uh, may kind of go on a, a training course. But really, what you should do is look at what you know about something, look at what you're being told or taught, and say, okay, is is what I know still relevant? Uh, as you know, does my worldview need to evolve? You know, I was talking to a client in the US earlier this week about diversity and inclusion. You can go on a diversity and inclusion training course that doesn't make you any more diverse or inclusive. You really have to look at the way that you think, the way that you act, the policies that you have within the organization and say, is the way that I think and act and all these policies fit for the world that we live in today? Uh, if it's not, you have to kind of almost trash what you know and, and start thinking a different way. And, and people are often reticent to do that. They put it in the too hard basket. Oh, it's too hard. It's like, yeah, yeah, it is too hard. That's uh, that's how we grow as humans. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a good point. And I, I just want to bring you back to the book as well, because it's a really important point. Um, and just for the listeners, you know, the definition of culture from your perspective, because, you know, we want to make sure we're on sound ground and everyone has the same basis of understanding. I find this is something that's comical in, in project management. Everyone's got a different view. And you mentioned world <laughs> points and maps of the territory, if you like. Um, what, what's your definition of culture? Uh, so for me, Val, culture is the sum of everyone's attitudes, beliefs, behaviors, traditions, and skills. Everyone's. It doesn't belong to anybody. HR might be the custodian of it. The leadership team are expected to role model it, but everybody gets the same culture regardless of role, length of tenure uh, or, or qualification. Yeah, great. Thanks, mate. And, you know, for us, uh, for those that have read the book or haven't read the book, um, I like the way you've laid it out. So you've kind of done it in a very structural way. You talked about structure early on and and having that framework, then diving into the detail and coming back out again was really useful for me for, as a reader. So it's quite quite a good journey. And you talk about these six pillars um, do, would you go through into those in a bit of detail, please? Yeah, sure. And I'll talk about, I'll talk about them in a, in a project context. Um, I, I think it's important yeah, for me, uh, leadership and culture has been downplayed for far too long in project management. The emphasis has been on method process for far too long. That's not to say that it's not important. Of course it is. Of course it is. Uh, we still need, um, I guess, a way of capturing the information so we can measure and manage it. Um, but team building is 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 really where it's at for project managers because without a team of committed people around you who who kind of feel that they can bring their best self today in a safe environment, without yeah. that, you're never going to be successful, like ever. And so for me, um, the six pillars, the first pillar is around personality and communication because that's the way into any team is for everyone to understand each other. Not only that is to, to, to really be clear on what everyone's communication styles are. I think there's still an assumption that we know how to communicate when actually we just communicate in our default way. You know, for me, mm. it's fairly obvious. I'm, a, I'm an extrovert. I do a lot with my hands. People can't see that. I'm doing this with my hands right now. Uh, really doesn't work. Really didn't work when I started managing software developers. I had to be slow paced. I had to be calm. I had to be yeah. measured. I had to talk in facts, details, numbers, all the stuff I hate doing. Now, this is not about changing who you are as a person. You know, I, my values are still my values. I still support Everton. You know, those things are never going to change, even though some of them should. Um, but it's about changing your style to meet the other person. So personality and communication is, is, is very much the way into any team. And then at the heart of every great team is an aspirational statement of the future, a vision. 
kind of paints the picture of where are we going to go? Every project mm-hmm. needs a vision, every department needs a vision, and they all connect up to the organization's vision. Because when, because when you're on a project team, if you can draw a straight line from your vision to the organization's vision, all of a sudden it gives you this kind of intrinsic motivation. You feel a passion for something that you didn't really know that you had, and all, you can see how it contributes to the success, not only personal, yeah. but also team and organization. And so I think that's important too. I don't want to just speak for 20 minutes and give you the six. Uh, so no, feel no, free no. to jump in at any time. <laughs> I, I think I think what we do is a, a bit of a topical on each of the six and then maybe go back to sure. some of the ones that have interest, yeah, because they, they are really, really yeah. good. And I'm just nodding in the background, that's all. <laughs> so, please. so the vision is at the heart. And then, and, and then there are a set of values and, and values really provide emotional direction. Again, they've become very on vogue over the last five years. Mostly values are invisible, but then they tend to become visible when things are really bad. Uh, the great organization cultures, the great team cultures, they make values visible, not only that, they hire against them. So that you know. So when we talk about hiring for cultural fit, what we're looking for is a values match. Because you know that if you've got like-minded humans who want the best for other people, uh, that that's you know that's where the magic happens. Uh, so they're the first three, and then and then the other three are around behaviour. So making sure that we're human in our interactions with each other, make sure that we understand what it means to perform, make sure that we've got the discipline, make sure that that if anyone's not behaving in the way that they should, that there's a process to go through and they're dealt with in, in an empathetic yet firm way. Then there's collaboration is, you know, kind of that agreement on how we're going to work together. What are the things that we're going to do? You know, what does our working environment look like? What's the method and process that we need to use? That minimum viable documentation that I was talking about. And then the last pillar is around innovation. So, you know, how are we making time to be creative? How are we making sure that we learn from failure, but then don't repeat the same mistakes over and over again? And when you put all of those six pillars together and when you're deliberate about defining the way that the team needs to interact in order to be successful, then, you know, everything gets delivered all of the time, all of the time. And that's the true measure of success is how happy are the stakeholders? How happy are the people? What's that sense of belonging look like? And yet we still measure project managers on time, cost and scope when they're the very things that move. The thing that should never move is is how a human being feels and how happy the stakeholders are, not only with the experience of the project, but with the outputs of the project as well. And this is what boggled my mind, uh, Colin, was that all of this stuff makes absolute sense. And anyone reading that would go, oh, yeah, of course, I know that. But yet if you go to any of the project management text, that isn't in there. Now, you'll get things like stakeholder management, you'll get communication plans, but you will not have things like personality, values, vision, traits, behaviors, collaboration, and innovation all in one kind of synthesized set. What's your view on that? Do you, I mean, these are institutes that are chartering our professionals, that are guiding our, you know, our youth into this industry, What's what's your take on that? Do you think that's is it going to change? Or? I'm pissed off. Yeah, I bet you. <laughs> no, no, it's not going to. It's not going to change. Yeah. It's not. It's so, bad, yeah. This is this is what drove. It, this is what drove me to work for myself. I never wanted to. I never had no plans to work for myself. And I went to a conference uh, in Sydney, and I went to one in Adelaide, and all the people were talking about was process and method and the way to get benefits management is to draw up a spreadsheet and that way benefits get delivered it's like no that's not the way benefits get delivered benefits get delivered when senior managers give a damn that that's how benefits get delivered where they're prepared to stand behind something and say yes we're going to own that and 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 you know you look at all of the textbooks 
file and you're right. None of the important stuff is in there. Um, listen, that's not to decry the great work that institutions are doing. I feel like I have to say that because there's a lot of good stuff they are doing. But fundamentally, it's down to kind of giving people the knowledge they, they need to truly lead, not manage, and to create mm. an environment where, I mentioned it before, where people feel safe enough to speak up, who feel empowered to do good work, uh, who have the opportunity to challenge and plan and prioritize and do all of these really good things to deliver a product that works at the end. And it doesn't, we get, we get stuck into these, should it be agile, should it be waterfall? It's like, it, it, that's not the argument. The argument is, what does the customer expect? What's the value that we get from the end of it? And what's what's the fastest way to do that whilst maintaining the level of quality that we need so we get that incremental value? Mm-hmm. And 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 um, I wanted to change. So, you know, I, last year I wrote the project book, which really broke down the elements of leadership. It broke down the elements of project team building. It broke kind of, I included the important stuff around the methods. Um but this is why only a third of projects every year are considered successful, Val, because we've been training people on the wrong thing. People are more concerned about the badge than being a good human. And that's wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I love the passion, Colin. I love it. Got my soapbox out there, didn't I? <laughs> no, but it's fantastic. It's, it's great because, you know, um, th- th- this is part of this podcast is to share these views and ideas yes. and, and be disruptive. Um, and, I, I just love it coming through. So thank you for that. Um, I just want to come back to, you know, you were going through your, your six pillars uh, and you mentioned a couple of things that intrigued me. You spoke about, um, obviously you spoke about the first pillar, which is personality and communication around team building and how you got to get everyone together. Um, and I think, I think there's a lot around uh, team building and, you know, we, we relate to successful sports teams and things like that. And, and, and there's a lot in that as well. But then you also moved on to vision. And for me, this is, another one of those things that people hear a lot of, but they don't really fully understand and appreciate. And I think you alluded to it where a lot of companies have a vision statement, but how many of them actually believe it and live it? And, you know, and often you find, um, you know, if you, if you do a bit of reading on, on companies and the histories, the founding fathers of companies have a vision that they live, but then when they move on and the next CEO comes in, or the next, uh, or they get bought out, or whatever the case may be, they lose that vision and they lose what it's all about. Um, but how do you, if you're in that situation and you don't, well, actually, I don't even know what my company's vision is. How do you, how do, how do you make that more accessible to people? How do you come up with a vision to start off with? <laughs> so many it's questions, really, I know. So many questions, Dale. <laughs> so many questions. Um, uh, vision statement is really it's really straightforward to come up with, uh, you know. And I put the exercise for it in the book uh, in Culture Fix. We we just use uh, kind of aspirational words on post-it notes and come up with something that's just a little bit out of reach. And that's the thing about a vision statement is you've got to be able to achieve it. Otherwise, it's it's not aspirational. It's unachievable. And when something's unachievable, we naturally disengage. We're like, yeah, we're never going to be get. You know, and I always caution organisations, particularly when I'm working on their cultures, like we want to be the number one HR team in the world. It's like, hey, listen, don't want to burst your bubble. It's never going to happen. It's never going to happen because how will you know? Mm. Like you can be the number one HR team in New Zealand providing there's a an award and there's a set of criteria where you can measure yourself, but generally just can't do it. Uh, most organizations' vision statements are bland, overly wordy, uh, I guess, paragraphs that, that, that someone's come up with 
and the staff haven't been involved. And then they wonder why the staff don't know it. It's like, cause they weren't involved. Firstly, uh, Secondly, it's way too long. You can't print it on a T-shirt, so people are never going to be remembering it. And thirdly, it's just full of business buzzwords. Mm. And so, you know, a good a good vision statement is four to six words. Um, it, it's specific to whatever it is that you're doing right now. So, I ran a I ran a, a session for a, for a finance team, and their vision statement previously was. Uh, to provide support and financial services and advice to the organization to underpin their success or something like that. And I was like, yeah, that's great, but everyone goes around you and no one talks to you. So actually what's your vision statement for the next 12 months? And, you know, there's the exercise and we did it's like 45 to 60 minutes and their vision statement is more than money because they want to be known as the team that's more than money. I'm like, awesome. Right. How do you use that to inspire the work that you do? What what is what are the daily interactions look like to to make people think that you're more than money? Sending a spreadsheet out, what's that going to do? And you really tie everything back to that vision. Is you know that day to day activity? How does it align? Because when you get a vision statement right, uh, it provides the basis for decision making. So it's like I said, it's a it's a forty five minute exercise. Every project manager should know how to do it. Every every manager should know how to do it. Every every team should have a good subculture. This is how you get great organization cultures. Is every team should have a great subculture, you know, and and the beacon for that is a strong vision statement. No, fantastic. Thanks for that. And um, I was just thinking there as well. You know, people often get mixed up between mission statements and vision and, and vision statements. And I think for me, what I've heard, and I don't know if you agree with this or not, but the mission statement is what you're currently doing, uh, yeah, and the, and the vision is yeah, and the vision is what you want to become. Um, that's it. Yeah. yeah, that's it. And and it's really simple. Um, but I think what you touched on there is that the actual belief behind it. Um, it's not just if someone goes. Do you have a vision statement? Oh, yes, we do. It's somewhere, <laughs> you know, it's something yeah, that everyone it's knows. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's something that everyone should be living and breathing and understanding in organization and then brought them back to projects and understanding how the project fits into that organizational vision as well. Because some people might think, oh, that's great for the business level, but actually, no, it drives the project because the project mm. is part of that vision. If not for that vision, why do the project, right? Because it doesn't contribute to what you want to become. So yeah, really, really um, insightful. Thank you. Yeah. And, and, and again, Dale, what we don't teach project managers is, is uh, essentially an organization has got, has got a vision, this statement of where it wants to be or what it wants to do in the world. Underneath that, you've got a strategy and your strategy is full of business plans and out of that fall your goals. In order to achieve your goal, we, to achieve the goals, you have business as usual activity and project activity and underpinning all of that is culture, right? So everything within that project portfolio has to link to the strategic intent and the vision of the organization. If it doesn't, you don't do it. And we don't stop enough projects. We don't, we don't look at our project portfolio and go, right, how does that contribute to the strategy? How does that line up with the vision? It doesn't. What do you think we should do? Let's just keep doing it anyway because the CFO says he wants it. Yeah, that's a smart move. And then we're like, we've got this $2 million cash cow over here. It's been going for five years. It's like, yeah, Delmarsh, you should have killed it ages ago because it never even linked up to the strategy in the first place. Um, so, yeah, that's what a good vision statement does is it provides that decision-making ability. Great, thanks. And I, and I love it when you get passionate how the strong accent comes out. <laughs> and the hands, I get all scoused I go, stupid, what are you doing? What are you doing? <laughs> I love it. I love, I love the Scalsa accent. Some, some people don't. I love it. Um, and then also you touched on values and behaviors. And this is quite an intriguing one as well, because um, 
I've, I've been reading around th- this recently and, uh, you know, a, a certain cultural fit um, it, it has foundations of, of certain values and behaviors, um, but not everyone fits into that. Um, mm. And you talk, you know, you, you, I think it is um, uh, attract, select uh, and um, attrition or something like that, where it's the process where, you know, you attract the people you want for your culture with the right values and the right behaviors, you, you know, um, and then those that don't fit through natural attrition, they'll just leave. But then that mm-hmm. got me thinking, well, should that always be the case or should we nurture people to fit the behavior? Is there any, is there any um, benefit or value in, in having, so, so someone might be on the project, right? I might have a brilliant engineer or I might have a fantastic planner um, and, and technically they're amazing in terms of what their skill can do, but their personality and their values and their behaviors just doesn't fit. I just wonder mm. how much those two sort of work against each other. Yeah. So three different things, their personality values and behavior uh, where their behavior doesn't fit. There's a process to follow to make sure that you reinforce the behavior that you expect. Uh, I think often uh, project managers and managers generally, actually, this is not just aimed at project managers, managers lack the courage uh, or they don't have a real knowledge of the process that you need to follow through, you know, those courageous conversations with regards to behavior. I think with regards to personality and values, um, uh, you know, kind of empathy and compassion and compassion play a part here. Um, and, 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 you know, for me, we always, we, the last thing that we ever wanted to do was hire fast because often when you hire fast, you compromise the values. Okay. Um, you know, Tony Shea, who, who until recently was the CEO of Zappos, he's still the CEO of Zappos in, in Las Vegas. Um, he said they hire slow fire fast. And I, I love the simple way that he said that most organizations don't do that. They hire fast and then fire slow if at all. Mm. Um, I think, you know, where we use the values uh, when we were hiring as a team, we would determine our culture and we would talk about the things that we as humans kind of, you know, found what were important to us. Uh, and and there were a mix of behaviors and values, the things that we as a team valued, you know, uh, we value courageous conversations, uh, we value openness in our interactions, uh, we, you know, we, we value delivery with, with compromise, you know, they were kind of our values, whereas a behavior might be around discipline, courage, you know, those kind of things, collaboration. And, and so we would ask questions, you know, I never, when we were hiring, particularly for a project, when I was hiring for my project teams, never asked standard questions. HR were like, there's a standard set of questions you need to fill in the form. Because <laughs> clearly I work for Kermit the Frog. And um, <laughs> I, yeah. so Val, they were just off the wall stuff. So I, the short, I, was, I was joking with someone recently. He said, what's the shortest interview you've ever held? I was like, well, this guy just came in and I said, Mate, I was like, we're going to interview you. I was like, it's not your standard interview. I was like, I'm just interested about a failure you've had and what you learned. Like anything, doesn't matter. You could have missed the bus on the way here. I was like, doesn't have to be project related, just any failure. And he looked at me and he was just like, he kind of, like he waited a long time. I was like, so did you understand the question? He was like, did I speak too quick? He was like, no, I got it. I got it. I got it. I was like, okay. I was like, it can be anything. You know, you could have tripped over a pavement, anything. So he was like, yeah. He's like, you know what? I can't think of a single failure. I said, 
I was like, oh, I really appreciate your honesty. Thank you so much for that. Uh, that's not what we're looking for. Uh, one of our values is we see failure as a learning opportunity. And, and what we're looking for is people who've consistently looked to learn throughout their careers. He's been a project manager for eight years. So it was kind of off the wall stuff like that, Val. Uh, not necessarily meant to catch people out. What we tried to do was put people in scenarios um, that, that you know they could expect to find themselves in with the particular stakeholders that we had within our organization. But the, the questions were always weighted towards the value of the individual because that's what we wanted them. To, we wanted the values to shine through. The technical skills, I could teach them. We could teach them. Yeah. Uh, emotional skills, we could coach them. You know, And that was a big part of my role was to coach people on that emotional side of things. But if they didn't have the values, they would never fit. Uh, and so we, we, we tried to make sure that we sieved sift those out during the the interview process yeah but but also to add to that vulnerability as well you know this a project manager of eight years who doesn't have a track record of failure uh you know just smells like bs to me so i would have been saying the same thing so but there is a kind of a running there's a running culture in some of the project management forums not all of them i made you on mega projects where you know, they're disciplined for being wrong or they're disciplined for, uh, or, uh, for, mm. for failing. And so, you know, imagine you're sitting in a, in a meeting review with 25 other senior execs and the client and, um, you know, you front up uh, butterflies in your tummy and all that and, and the project isn't doing well and you get asked a pretty pointy question and everyone's looking to you the answer and you say, and they say, can you do it? And you probably know you can't, but you say yes anyway. And there's a lot of that happening um yeah what about that culture that's the reality val that's yeah. the reality yeah absolutely so you know these these big companies I, I'm, I'm probably emphasizing more on the mega projects where there's a lot of difficulty in shaping culture so you might have a vision or even you might have really good parts of the departments that are doing really well uh but but it's not uniformed um how would you approach that so say we said all right we're going to drop colin in there how do you how do you tackle a, a beast like that in much the same way that I would do anything, I've been in in, in some of those complex uh, projects myself. Val, is if the first thing you do is to get to know the people. Uh, nothing can be completed without building relationships and developing that understanding. You want empathy, you want compassion, you want all of that good stuff. That emotional foundation is crucially important. You know, as a project manager, you need to know you need to know enough about your subject matter expertise. When I when when I moved to New Zealand in two thousand and seven, I went to work for an a state-owned enterprise. They were an electrical engineering company. I come from retail in the UK, clothing. I knew nothing about electrical engineering. And I remember got, I got asked at a conference. Uh, it's like, oh, so what did you do? I was like, well, I would do what anyone would do. I read every single night all the weekend. I, I, I was on the internet looking up terms. I had a notebook with all of these things in. I wanted to make sure that I could ask the right questions. But crucially, when I was put in front of senior managers and I didn't know the answer, I recognized that if I tried to make it up, I would just get found out. If I said yes to something that I couldn't deliver, all I was doing was increasing my own anxiety, my own stress. And so, you know, it's one of the one of the lessons you learn very early on is if you say yes to stuff you can't do, uh, then you, you're really just creating a problem for yourself. So I learned to say, no, I, I can't answer that right now, but I'll come back to you with the answer within within 24 hours. And so, you know, I often say to project managers, where you feel the pressure, don't default to yes. 
default to, I don't know, but I'll find out. Um, and ultimately, if you're kind of, you know, if you're put under the gun for that, then you've got a decision to make. Is this the right That's organization for me, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. And you, and you see it because, you you know, the, the, the vast read, I mean, culture is about the parts make up the whole, right? So um, if project managers are all saying yes, but they know it's not, you get these projects blowing out um, and they, they go over time, they go over budget. And, and, and largely this is because of this yes culture as well. Um, so that's a really good point. I'm going to bring you back to pillar one because, you know, I want to. And uh, personality, <laughs> personality and communication are really important to Dale and I. We, we work together on a team. And one of the things we were really keen on doing was to make sure we understood everyone's personality. So we actually went on, what was that personality called? The personality type we did, Dale? Insights. Insights. Yeah, that's right. So we wanted to get at least a basis. Now, that's not saying it's a science as such, but, you know, depending on how you feel in the day and when you complete the, the, the quiz, it gives you some predicates to personality preference. Um, and we use that in our organization um, to help understand how people relate. I'm a bit more extroverted and a bit more red because they give you a bit of a color disc in that, in that mm-hmm. sense. Um, but from your perspective, understanding personality from a cultural perspective, because you said you like to get to know everybody and, and have some empathy and how do you gauge the right personality mix for a group or a project team? You know, cause it's all about kind of communication and dynamics, isn't it? You don't want everyone being an introvert depending on the project type, I guess you don't want everyone being an extrovert and you don't want them to all have clashing kind of personality traits. So what's, what's the, is there a perfect medium? Is there a balance? Well, you want it. You, you want all the personalities to be represented. If you can, uh, Val, that's the ideal mix because what you end up with then is people who can really focus in on the detail, people who are good at empathy and, and loyalty, people who are action oriented and can get the job done and people who are creative yep. and social. The ideal team mixes all of those. One of the mistakes I made very early in my, in my senior management career was trying to hire myself you'd think one of me was enough. Um, but, but, you know, what, what I felt we needed in the team was more energy, more creativity. So I went out and hired someone who had a similar personality to me. And you know what? For the first month, it was awesome. We did Thursday, Friday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday drinks. We, you know, we came up with ideas. We had whiteboards all over the place. We had, you know, just stuff everywhere. It was awesome. And then after a month, we just got on each other's nerves big time, like, Big awesome. time. Yeah. Um, and you start to really notice the flaws in each other. So that, you know, uh, you know, the right mix is trying to have, you know, it's like the breakfast club, right? You've got all of these multiple, per- for those of us old enough to remember the breakfast club, you've got all these oh, multiple personalities, you bring them all together. They don't understand each other. But then after a couple of days of being in the same environment, you know, though I did that with an agile team once. I'm like, you guys just like the breakfast club. And then one guy came up to me in the break and he's like, what's the breakfast club? So obviously I, I, I dismissed him from the oh. train immediately. <laughs> and, and, and so, you know, it's important. But, but, but if, if you can't get, I worked with a team in New Zealand and they had 29 of the same personality types out of 31 people. Now, of course, there were, uh, there was lots of passive aggressive behavior. There were lots of personality clashes, tons of emails, no one taking any action, lots of headphones uh, because they didn't want those interactions. 
you know, and, and, you know, one of the things that I taught them is something that we're not taught is how to step into someone else's personality, which is, which kind of that empathetic approach, but also Mm. to be the driving force, you have to change up the way that you communicate. And, and so you guys will have done it yourself, you know, every now and again, you'll think, okay, well, what would an action person think? Although Dale's South African, so they're predominantly action people. (laughs) They take no prisoners at all. Whereas like, you know, for, 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 for us as Brits, predominantly, they're more introverted. They, you know, they don't talk about the emotions. They talk about the weather instead, uh, which is why I was asked to leave because I talked about emotion all the time. My dad was like, it's going to get you in trouble. You better leave the country. Um, is, is when you have that appreciation and when people are able to change up the way that they communicate or at least think, you know, in the way that someone else would, you get a healthier balance. Um, and that, and that's the, that's the benefit of personality profiling. I think some people do it too seriously. Uh, and it is, I mean, self-aware individuals are the building blocks of great teams, great cultures. Uh, so you, you need to know about yourself in order to leverage your strengths and work on the things you're not so good at, uh, but also gain those insights uh, into, into yeah. the other members of the team as well. Is there like a, a go-to personality preference test? Is there something the guys, if they want to run it themselves, let's say someone's listening to this now, I want to know what kind of personality I am. You know what, Val, the, the, there's hundreds of things. They all link back to Carl Jung's work in the, in the 20s and 30s. You know, I use a particular yeah. brand. I like colors. I think it's easy, blue, green, red, green. yellow. Yeah. Anything that you can do to simplify. I'm not a big fan of Myers-Briggs. I can never remember whether I'm an ENTJ or an ENTF, and I can't remember what the F stands for. So that's always a problem. So I, you know, it, it's, it, you know, I think you'll find one that works for you. Just check see if we can find one, and we'll throw it in the, we'll throw it in the bio. Yeah. Hey, Dale, um, that, that's great, and um, I'll, I'll hand over to Dale soon. I promise. Um, and then communication methods, because I, I was always taught um, before I got into project management, I was obviously doing. Um, uh, defense work. I was in the Navy and we were taught um, it's not what you say, it's how you say it mm-hmm. um, to be an effective leader. And obviously in times of high pressure, uh, people are distracted <laughs> naturally. <laughs> Bombs going off, sinking ship, whatever it might be. And so um, <laughs> so it was a different style of, of, of communication training. And then when I went out, I, I found that that wasn't the norm, that, that you know, civilian life and normal projects, that communication was random. It was weird and even if you asked and you said to someone you know you've got to keep your communication up he says well i'm sending an email once a day you know what do you else want me to do it's like well that's not really communication so from from your perspective what's the best methods of communication that you think your top three or five that you've you've done and seen on projects that works really well for culture so I, you know, the thing that I talk to project managers about, Val, and one of the things that I teach you all the time is how to change up your communication style because it's you, you've very much got to deliver in a message that's expected that the audience expects. So if I'm talking to a load of accountants, then it's going to be slow paced, calm, details, facts, numbers, all of that kind of stuff. People, people, I'm going to be warm, empathetic. I'm going to use stories. I'm going to take people on a journey. Uh, action people, I'm going to be direct. I might, you know, I might drop the odd swear word. It's not my style, but I know they're expecting it. And then for more social people, lots of fun, lots of energy. Now, that can be really tricky. If you're speaking to a room full of multiple personalities, you've got to do all four of those things to keep a room engaged. 
all four of those things. You know, I've already done all four of those things on the podcast. Here's a test, listeners. Um, but I have already done all four of those things in terms of quotes, methods, structure, been fairly direct, got all passionate a couple of times, told a couple of jokes. Do you know, kind of, and I think once you master communication, which is why I think we should teach it in schools, it's a life skill that you never, ever lose. And I think then the ability to be able to recognize someone's personality by the way that they dress, the way that they talk, the kind of jobs that they're in. If, if we taught people how to do that, and it's a big part of my project management training, because that's where the magic happens. Because, you know, project managers or managers generally, the, the, the main job is to motivate and inspire often a group of disparate people with different priorities, with different kind of emotional values. And, and turn them into an, a really effective, uh, productive team united behind a vision to get that thing done. And that's the hardest thing to do. It, it really, really is. And, and, you know, I had someone, I had someone who asked me a question in Auckland. He said, oh, like, and he stood up, it's like 400 people in the room. I was like, if you don't like people, what would you recommend? I was like, just call me a BA. <laughs> yeah. You know, project management's not for you. Software engineer you know? or something, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's oh, right. Yeah, and anything that doesn't involve multiple communication points. Yeah, yeah I think we so. should change uh, the title. It's not a project manager; it should be a project leader, and then hopefully people can focus more on leadership than managing. Um, but thanks very much for that, Colin. I wanted to um, throw a slightly different angle at it with the whole obviously COVID changing things and remote teams, and that that's something you talk about as well. How do we manage to harness all of this goodness you've just spoken about, creating the right vision and instilling the values and behaviors? And so communication, obviously, there's technology around it, but there's a softer side to communication that we need to also tap into. Um, has has the remote working and, and, and the ways we've changed and adapted because of coronavirus, has it allowed us to see a different way or has it taken us back a step or has it allowed us to potentially revisit what we were doing prior. Um, I wonder if you could share your views on, on, on where we headed with everything we've discovered really through this crisis. Well, remote working is not new, Dale. I've been keen to stress this every time I've done the speech over the last kind of four or five months. It's it's not new. You know, we were using remote working back when I was in the UK in 2004. Sure, it was crude and the pictures weren't as good. And we had a team in India and we were do, using Microsoft Messenger back in the day. And it wasn't any of this team stuff. Uh, so remote working is not, is not new. Um, unfortunately, too many organizations, too many teams are still lazy about the cultural definition definition. They think that just because someone's on the end of a video link that they're still a part of the team. Yeah, they can be providing that, you know, that you're really prescriptive about the way that you build, define the culture. So for example, we talk about collaboration. One of the things that we've seen that we saw during COVID is people went from back-to-back in-person meetings to back-to-back Zoom meetings. The two are completely different. Mm. They're completely different. You know, when you're in person, you can see the whites of people's eyes. You can't always do that on Zoom. Different people have got different links. Some people have got the cameras on. Some people have got people haven't created any kind of etiquette around it. We haven't agreed how we would collaborate. And so, you know, at every stage, what you should be doing is looking to define the culture you need for the conditions that you have right now. So that's something that I did right in the early days to say, okay, so you need to agree a set of behaviors while you're all kind of remote and, you know, kind of how you're going to collaborate they're the, they're the, at least the base level you need to define what those things are now 
you know, the distinction remote working as in I'm not able to get in the office rather than flexible working, which is about me designing my week. Uh, organizations haven't done enough of this. And in fact, it's the behaviors of individuals that have held back flexible working. So there's a, there's a meme going around on, on, on social media is uh, who's responsible for uh, transformation in your workplace. One, the CEO, two, the CFO, three COVID, right? Yeah. Because, right. you know, People have been holding kind of progress back for years. And they've said, oh, we can't, that won't work here. We haven't got the technology. We haven't got the links, of course, COVID threw all of that out. Um, and so flexibility should be here to stay, uh, but it's going to mean challenging the behaviors of certain individuals. Also, it, 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 it means a different mindset because it requires lots of trust. So yes, you have to define the culture because the culture is the thing that keeps people anchored, regardless of where you are in the world, right? If you take this work anywhere approach, it's the culture that keeps you anchored. Everyone's got the same vision, the same behaviors, the same principles of collaboration. And you can work anywhere, anywhere. Uh, but as soon as one person lets the team down, what you don't do is address it by taking remote or flexible working away for everybody. You address one person and say, hey, that's not what we agreed. Your performance is under scrutiny because you didn't deliver. Now, you want to treat it with empathy to make sure you understand their situation first and foremost. Of course you do. Um, but too often what happens is we have one bad apple and that spoils the entire fruit bowl for everybody else. Yeah. And people yeah. are like, oh, well, we've got that one person and they weren't, they weren't answering, they weren't on teams when they should have been. It's like, that's not mm -hmm. flexible working. Yeah. You know, flexible working is you set me my work at the start of the week. I decide where I need to be to deliver it. And then I deliver it by whatever date. If I don't deliver it, then we have a conversation. That's a good no, point. Cause it goes back to your point around psychological safety and having that trust within the team. Um, one thing we thought was really effective that our teams have started to adopt is um, it's just nominating a day a week where, you know, you decide that you don't want to have cameras on, you know, take a break, you know, you don't have to have the camera on 24 seven. It's ridiculous. And so instead of having this mandate that you have to have your video on or a camera on while you're on a video conference it can be exhausting too. You know, there's a whole buzz around this new term zoom fatigue because um, it is different. Like you can't read a room. Like you said, you, you don't have the same connection. We're still trying to figure it all out. Um, we've just been thrusted into this technological advance and, and there's a lot of uh, people still trying to understand how you do it. So I think, um, I think it's a really good in initiative to, 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 let, to give people permission effectively. You are right to turn off their camera if they want, maybe not make a meeting if, they, if they've got something else on or if they need a break, you know, stretch your legs. Um, I've certainly noticed my step counter is down since I've been home working uh, you're in melbourne as well i looked at my yeah. steps and i'm like four thousand steps for the day that's terrible um and i got this running joke with the kids because the kids are on their ipads they're doing schooling in the other corner right and i i told them and i i kind of regret it now i said don't be on the ipad too long because you'll get ass cancer and i was making a joke but they took it for real so they freak out if they're on their asses too long in a cycle but 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 it's because it's because we're not used to this situation. So I've got to, you know, I've got to have a standing station, and that's the other thing we haven't really figured out how to make people comfortable at home, and that's part no. of the culture as well. It's like when you make a culture and work, you know, you get them to pace things up, don't you? You you want them to make it feel like it's tribal, like it's your space, and you can build it your way you want. Dale and I used to do this. We'd put kind of things, not marketing, but things that made us feel like part of the team, and our org chart mm. and our vision statement would be on the wall and. There, there are other really good things as well that visual marketing aids. Do, do you talk about them as well when you go into offices or projects? 
Yeah, because they're your cultural symbols. You know, it's often the stories that that, that, that keep uh, cultures together uh, and, you know, what the great organization cultures do around the world. And I've been very fortunate. They've thrown open their doors, particularly when I was writing Culture Fix, is the stuff literally everywhere, but they help that they set their people up for success at home as well. Um, so, you know, we use this concept of distributed team. A distributed team is one that all has the same tools, has the same access, internet access. Um, so literally, you're just not in the office, you're in different places. Um, and, and they've still got those cultural cues and markers they use. They're trained on how to use different tools like Miro as a virtual whiteboard has been really popular. I love it. It's uh, one of my favorites. I, you know, I'm a big believer in, in culture principles, not rules, um, because rules is very command and control, whereas if we have a set of principles, there's some flexibility in that. But we agree to abide by the principles, but we have some fun with it too, uh, Val. And I, and I think particularly during any kind of crisis or any period of stress is we have to find those lighthearted moments. And, and people did it early on, right? There was that social element to it. So, you know, you'd have Friday drinks or Thursday drinks, and then people did it to death. We're like, I've got to do this every friday it's like yeah well you wouldn't do that if you were in the office right mm. it's about different things at different times to engage different people in different ways to make sure that you've still got those kind of random interactions because uh, they're often in the way that you get good ideas uh, but also to make sure that, that that people still feel connected to something that isn't rigid and i think what most people well what not not most people but many organizations certainly the ones that i spoke to and worked with what they tried to do was to really you know kind of overly process the way that people worked outside the office uh, without addressing the big things, which was presenteeism. The fact that everyone's got their laptop at home all of the time, which means they never switch off. It's like, well, what are you doing to create an environment where people can put a laptop away and say, right, at 5.30, you're done. I was like, you've been sending emails at seven, eight o'clock. You should now more than ever, you should see that that's a really destructive thing to do because you're sending the message to the other person that you expect a response. So, you know, it's, it's about setting them up in terms of the working environment, but also making sure that, you know, the kind of working conditions are ones that help people to balance the emotional, physical, family, and also the ambitious side of their natures. I was um, I was thinking there, Val, you probably need to get one of those desk bikes where you can sort of, you know, have your laptop on it and cycle away. Yeah, I've seen one that, that that's, it's got a button operated and then it just turns into a bed. Have you seen that one? Yeah, screen, yeah but that doesn't screen. help your step count. <laughs> kind of, yeah, it kind of defeats the object a little bit. Yeah, just, I'm just going to walk to the bike and then five minutes later, you're asleep. Yeah. I'll lie down and pedal. No, exactly. Nice. <laughs> Sorry, I, I digress. Uh, <laughs> so, Colin, I think... What you're saying was great, and it brought me back to we've discussed this before uh, around on the pod um, freedom within the framework. And I think what you're really focusing in on is the framework, how important that actually is, because another buzzword, right? But people don't actually really know how to create that framework. And I think you hit some really good points there. Um, I was just thinking back and listening, you know, just trying to um, think back on everything we've discussed thus far and I'm thinking, okay, this is great. I've got so much content, right? But as a PM, as a project manager, how do I, because I think one of the, the, the foundations around all of this is that you mentioned at the top is you've got to build relationships, right? Without that, you can't do anything else. How do I go about, so I've been stuck in my way of working uh, and I've got my own 
personality and I don't know how to change that. And I don't know how to build good, strong relationships. I don't know how to get, you know, um, th those, those perhaps if, if I'm perhaps further on in my career, I don't know how to relate to millennials coming up. How do I go about changing my view? Well, you've got to look at yourself in the mirror, Dale, and ask yourself whether you're doing enough to be relevant in, in today's ever-changing world. It really is as brutal as that. Um, uh, what we're not looking for you to do is change what you stand for. Uh, but if you're really serious about project management, you need to know that relationships you know, are at the heart of that. We all do our best work on the edge of uncomfortable. Um, if we're not stretching ourselves by 5 10%, then we're losing that edge, you know, and it's our own personal responsibility to make sure that we're constantly pushing and stretching ourselves. 15, 20% is too much stress. Like I've said, too much anxiety. We don't want to be there, but just 5%, you know, and I always urge people to feel the fear and do it anyway, regardless of what it is. For building relationships is easy for me because I find it easy to have conversations. I can just go up to strangers. I'm fortunate in that way because that's something that's within my personality. You send me a spreadsheet with a load of numbers on it, Dale. I'm really going to struggle. And I have to go and ask for help. So my big challenge for my personality is to find someone who understands this stuff and tell them that I don't know, right? So have that fallibility. And then from a vulnerability perspective, you know, fallibility, I don't know this, right? I could either give it to them or I could be vulnerable and say, I need you to teach me. And, and, and I think that, you know, everyone's got those personality strengths. Everyone's got those opportunities for improvement. When, when you recognize what those opportunities are, find a buddy, find a coach, find a mentor, find, join a community of people that, that can really help you with that thing that you feel uncomfortable with. Um, yes, it, it, it feels scary to, to kind of ask for help. Um, but like I said, if you feel the fear, do it anyway. And that one thing that you learn could make all of the difference for your confidence in your career uh, moving forward. No, that, that's fantastic. They're, they're great points. And it reminded me of one of the, uh, I guess, sayings that Val and I had when we worked together. Um, and I can't remember where we picked it up from, but it's, you know, fell fast, fell off and fell forward. And we struggled with this in the beginning. We're like, what does it actually mean? You know, what, yeah. what, is, what, is, what does failing fast mean? What does failing often mean? What does failing forward mean? And we kind of discussed it between us. And I think we came down to the fact that actually it's not that you have to fail fast, fail off and fail forward, but it's the fear. And that's what you touched on. And, you know, we, we on our last pod, we, we chatted about courage. Um, and it, it, it's crazy actually how, because you get a certain personality type, and I know it's a general um, sort of comment, but you get a certain type of personality that is a project manager, right? Typically. And often when you're a PM, you, you, you feel as if you should have all the answers because everyone comes to you. What should I do? What do I do here? Both from the, the bottom up, the team delivering, as well as you have to have all the answers when you're reporting upwards, right? So there's a lot of, lot of pressure there to be right. But I think that's, that's wrong. You don't have to be right, right? It, 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 it's all about being honest, transparent, and leading the project as best you can. And so, yeah, it, it's, it's fascinating that this isn't, this isn't simple. It's not easy, right? It, it's not a, there's not a one size fits all 
Um, so this is what you do. This is how you build teams. And I think that's why things like your book is great because we can discuss it. We can discuss it for an hour or so, but you won't get all of it where people can go back, actually have a look and have a read. But that brings me up to your uh, sixth pillar, actually, and uh, innovation, right? Now we've got all this. We've got you know, uh, a great uh, collaborative team. Their values are in place. They're behaving the right way. They know what the vision is. We've got the right mix of personality and communication. Innovation. How does that relate to, to projects? Because people think, well, a project is a unique endeavor, so surely it's, you know, innovative by definition. But can there be another layer to that? Yeah, there can and there is, uh, particularly around the way that we solve uh, problems Dale, uh, we don't make time for innovation. Uh, organizations, uh, again, they try and use that cultural quick fix of creating an innovation hub, putting a few smart people in there and giving them a, some funky furniture to sit on. Uh, innovation lives inside everyone. Creative ideas live inside everybody. What we just need is, is the time, the space, and, and sometimes a different set of tools to really bring them out. So, you know, for, for, for all of our uh, certainly for all of my project teams, we used to spend two hours on a Friday between three to five. It was called innovation time. And we'd take a problem that one of our project managers had and we'd all sit around and we'd, we'd change up. We wouldn't do it in the meeting room because that was too, you know, kind of, that's too business as usual. Yes, we'd do it in a pub being Friday. We'd do it in a park. We'd, we'd you know, we'd go and find a coffee shop. Um, and, and we'd just come up with some ways of addressing that problem that we hadn't thought of. Some of them were completely off the wall things. Um, and, and, we often think that innovation is the next big thing and it can be a subtle tweak to a process. It can be removing a heading from something that makes something sound like something that it's not. Um, we, we can have a really complex framework. You mentioned frameworks before that really disengage people and they get PMO saying, oh, project managers don't follow the framework. It's like, because they can't understand it. How about if you change it from that from a swim lane diagram where people are just drowning into something really straightforward, like an index, do this, then do. And, and, and I, I just think we overcomplicate innovation. I think that failure, it's, it, it's got to feel safe to fail when we don't want to deliberately fail. We don't want to celebrate failure. We, but what we want to do is capture the failing so that we can learn too many organizations have got these lessons learned databases and yet they make the same mistakes over and over and over and over again. And so often one of the innovations that I recommend early on in any kind of cultural transformation project delivery or otherwise is to create a learning wall, somewhere where you can pin up all of the things that you've learned over the last three years of your projects. And it's a simple idea, but it's a powerful one because people can go through and they start the project going, yeah, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. And we end up in this pre-mortem situation where we're trying to predict what will kill the patient rather than a post-mortem, what has killed the patient. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I, the, the, I always kind of exercise caution when people say fail fast. It's like, yeah, that's cool, providing you're capturing the learning and mm. making sure you don't repeat it. No, absolutely. That's great. And that's good points. And I, I really like what you did there with the swim lane and the drowning. Uh, <laughs> picked up on that. Um, but there's also, um, to your point about, you know, having this uh, the innovation wall, isn't it 3M that's famous for the sticky note where, uh, you know, so one of the engineers you know, made a glue that was way too weak and, you know, uh, further down the line, another engineer went, well, why don't we create a sticky note? 
So that's right. Just yeah. some glue to to get a piece of paper to stick in his hymn book. That was it, and and couldn't make it work. And he kept the the innovation stayed there. It was just an idea on a wall or whatever it was in in 3M, and then someone else picked it up. You know, kind of two years later, and you know, 3M makes about six billion dollars every year. So I think they're doing all right in their innovation. Yeah. You know, look at look at Toyota. You know, they got kind of 40, 50 years of ideas just from just from people on the shop floor that they've turned into these great innovations. It doesn't have to be the next Uber or Airbnb. It can be. Mm-hmm. It can be a small thing like changing the light bulb to reduce the amount of power we, that you know, that we use, uh, and, and that's where innovation lives. No, they, that's, that's great. Point. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, just adding, that, I, I wrote a book about. Oh, not didn't write a book. I wrote a blog about one um, percent marginal gains, which which was posted on our, our site, and, and that was basically the the premise of that was was inspired by the British cycling team, as you know, and looking at them from a 1% incremental change perspective, like if we change just one little thing and then test it, and, and naturally some things will be completely useless and, and maybe, uh, you know, go over the top, but little by little they all add up. And, and I think that's where the, the project works is if you can get that mindset into the culture, it's like that, that innovation time sounds really, really exciting. I might just try that out with my team, but little incrementals, 1% of the time, um, can add up to a big difference uh, later on. Uh, that's, that's some great Absolutely. insight there. Thanks, mate. I just wanted to ask you one more as we kind of look to draw towards the end of the pod. Um, you mentioned um, you host your own podcast as well. Could you tell us a bit uh, more around that? It's called Culture Makers. Um, again, uh, most of what I do, I always think of what would I want in my position or people like me want to, to listen to. And, you know, when I wrote Culture Fix, I got to interview lots of people and talk to lots of people who shared stuff about their culture. And I and I thought at the time, wouldn't it be great if I could get business leaders from around the world to share the little things that they do to create uh, great places to work? Uh, so we're on our second season, Dale. And so, you know, I've been fortunate to interview some fabulous people from Atlassian, Salesforce and Cisco and Oracle, but also, you know, from, from cricket teams and insurance companies and just little things that they do to really inspire other people and, and to help them to see that, yeah, you are the creator of your own team. Yes, you can do it. Uh, and here's some ideas. So, yeah, it's called Culture Makers. Fantastic. So yeah, everyone make sure you go get some uh, culture maker uh, insight into your life. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm just going to hand to Val for the final few. Thank you, Dale. Uh, It's been great, Colin. I've been writing things down as you've been talking and waving your hands about. It's been really exciting uh, to have you on the pod. And uh, and there was one more that I thought was interesting only because it comes up a lot specifically in in LinkedIn and, and probably more so because of the COVID and we're reading a lot, um, and it's in your book as well, Culture Fix, is diversity and inclusion. And uh, and so is it harder or easier? And what do you mean by diversity and inclusion when you, when you talk about culture uh, in the context of the book? Uh, so, um, yeah, and, and, you know, diversity and inclusion, again, what we do is we say we're culturally lazy about it. We send everybody on a training course. Uh, Ingrid Jenkins, uh, I don't know if you guys have come across Ingrid Jenkins, she's the HR director for, for Microsoft Australia. For me, she said it best. She said that diversity is about having a workforce that represents the people that we serve. And inclusion is about how we ensure that the contribution that people make is valued. 
And, and and the same is true. I think lots of organizations try and solve the 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 DNI problem by ticking the box that everyone's been on a course, rather than looking at the policies that they have and asking themselves, this is that unlearning, have looking at the policies and say, okay, well, are, are these diverse and inclusive policies? Do, do do the managers that we have, do they understand what it means to be inclusive? Because we, we we make it, of course, and it, you know, and 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 it you know, it needs to be about gender and race and all these good things as well. But often in organisations, one of the biggest one of the biggest challenges, particularly here in, in in Australia, is around cognitive diversity. Is about making sure that different people with different opinions, uh, that, you know, that they get a chance to talk, they get a chance to challenge. Too often, it's who shout loud, who shouts loudest, or usually there's some middle aged white guy. <laughs> present company accepted, uh, telling people what they should do. You know, I joke all the time about projects. How do you know a project is failing? They bring in a middle-aged white consultant to tell you all how to do it properly. Like, you know, it, and, 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 and that runs counter to what the, the DNI training says. So I really liked what Ingrid Jenkins had to say. I think that was absolutely spot on in, in terms of kind of the way that we represent the workforce and then how we make people feel valued uh, for the, their, the, the uh, ideas and the contributions that they make. Yeah, thanks, Colin. Yeah, well, we, we agree. We, we've talked about it on a few other pods, Dale and I, about this equality of opportunity. We need to make sure that that's in the space. But, but the funny, the, the inverse, in particular in Australia, I was talking about in another pod as well, is about this, this digital gap that we have. So, so you've got big mega projects running and they're running the same suites as they ran 20, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, Excel spreadsheets and Microsoft Outlook emails. And what you're finding is you're getting these highly qualified, highly ambitious, hungry uh, data guys, digital people ready to go into the, let's say, construction infrastructure projects and no one's ready for them. Um, so we talk about inclusivity and you say, well, then what's, what's going on here? Uh, and so there's a, there's an incentive issue, I think, from the top and from government to mandate the way that we bring in digital inclusion, um, because obviously we're going to have some challenges if we don't start doing that now. And the other thing is around, you know, getting the right mix of people as well without forcing um, government's hand by making quotas a mandate of, of competency. So there's this discussion that, well, maybe we should have um, equal equal genders or we should have equal groups of people. Uh, by color of the skin or by religion minority or whatever it might be. And the, the challenge will be is that we don't have the same tech, technical resource pools or even non-technical resource pools. And thus the quota kind of argument runs out pretty quickly. Um, so, you know, your view on that, I mean, I don't want to drill you down on personal opinions, but is there is there a safe balance between these minorities and getting that right diversity balance? Again, it might come back to personalities rather than, any other category, but is there, is there a right mix for, for culture? Well, there is a right mix for culture uh, value. You want to make sure that there's, there's equal representation. You want to make sure that there's fairness. You want to make sure that everyone's getting the same opportunity. Uh, I'm getting mm. tired of the, well, it's the right person for the job. And if the right person's male and that's the right person. Yeah, no, that's bullshit. Uh, because the the right person for the job being male has been the case for the last 400 years or whatever, whatever it is. We, we, we seem to celebrate the fact that we've got a 50% split on boards. Like, yes, we got there. It's like, all right, so, yeah, we were, we should have been, you know, 200 years ago, whatever it is. We're well done us. Uh, but I think, you know, and I, and, and I read Ibram Zendi's book, uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist. That's a bit of the unlearning that I've done during, during COVID. Um, and it's really opened my eyes. So, you know, I really recommend that, that, that 
people do likewise, that they do enough to educate themselves on the on the challenges facing not just women, but 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 other races and and, and you know, I, I guess make sure that they've got an opinion on it that isn't the one that we've been force fed for the last hundred years or whatever it is. I'm I'm all over the place with my data, four hundred years, two hundred years, one hundred <laughs> years. But it's been a long time. Yeah, it's been yeah, a long yeah. time, let's put it that way. No, the other yeah, thing that no, I'll mention no. about, about digital transformation, by the way, um, is that we forget that the transformation piece is culture. We're very good at being digital in our strategy. So we want to be more digital. We want more technology. But we forget that the transformation is about taking the culture from one state to another. So in order for the digital to work, we have to redefine the culture up front in order to make sure that when we introduce it, the culture is ready for it. Too often what we try and do is change the culture rather than evolve it, change the culture after we've implemented the technology. And then the technology gets the blame uh, when the reality was the organization did nothing to create a pathway uh, for it to ever be successful. That's some really good points there. Thanks, Colin. Uh, Dale, over to you, mate. Yeah, no, wow, amazing. Um, I feel like we could probably spend maybe five or 10 hours just chatting with you, Colin, um, but we really appreciate your time. Um, and, and just to recap, we, you know, we, we, we touched on the, very, the six pillars from your book, Culture Fix. Um, you know, pillar one, personality and communication. Pillar two, vision. Three, values. Four, behaviors. Five, collaboration. Six, innovation. We went down those rabbit holes. We try to get uh, as much insight and, and knowledge from you. But I think, uh, you know, th- those that haven't yet need to go and get your book and read it. Um, and if not, they can find you also on, on Culture Makers, the podcast. So thank you very much for your time. Is Are there any final words that you want to leave us with? Uh, I, I guess for you know anybody listening is that that yes you can be the 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 uh, creator of your own culture. Remember, it's the sum of everybody, so get everybody involved in it. Uh, make sure you build relationships right at the start. For project managers, you build a team, build a plan, deliver a project. Always in that order. Uh, and leadership is a choice, uh, so don't be afraid to do things slightly different. Fantastic, I love it. Val, any final thoughts from you? No, no, I'm good. I think uh, Colin's answered with great passion and uh, and positivity. No, it's, it's great to have you on the on the show. Uh, we'd have, love to have you back as well, Colin. Appreciate it. Thanks, mate. Anytime, anytime, soon. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, folks, that's all we have time for on this episode. But if you want more, it doesn't have to stop there. Head over to our charity shop and get yourself some gear. All profits go to charity, and you'll be helping our children in need of fair opportunities and education in life. Subscribe via our website and you'll get a link to our online community where you can chat directly to Val, myself, our expert guests and other community members. For more information, blogs and previous podcasts, check out projectchatterpodcast.com. A massive thank you to our guest, Colin D. Ellis. Thanks as always to Val and thank you all for listening. Till next time, we say stay safe, be disruptive and have fun doing it. It's bye for now. The views, thoughts and opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to the participating individuals and not necessarily to the individuals are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company or individual. Mm-hmm.